One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, most of us know the story of Job, even if we're not particularly familiar with the Bible. We know that he was a righteous man, loved God, and and everything was going really, really well. He would have made a good American. God was blessing him, and that was the problem. You see, that presented an irritation to the devil who accused Job of only being righteous because God blessed him. Have you ever wondered if that would be true in your life? If the bottom dropped out, how would you respond? I have. Take away all the blessings, God. He'll curse you to your face. Let me at him. Have you ever felt like that God has given Satan Uh, free reign in your life, blessing one day, cursing the next for for really no apparent reason. Somebody must have it out for me, right? In his reflections on the book of Job, uh, author Stephen Lawson says, there comes a time in every life when all hell breaks loose, when everything falls apart, and, and and it seems like it's open season. It may happen suddenly, unexpectedly. One day life is good, job is secure, children behave, your health is good. Then out of the clear blue sky, like a violent thunderstorm, tragedy strikes. Life suddenly seems dark. It's out of control. Business goes sour. Marriage struggle. Maybe even dissolves. Child rebels, loved one is diagnosed with cancer. Your life becomes engulfed in in, in the fire. Your soul is torched. Your heart is singed. Your faith is scorched. Am I going to survive this? Lawson suggests it happens to all of us. If it hasn't happened to you, you just haven't lived long enough because no one is exempt. Like Job, it, it, it seems like much or all that you cherish is ripped from your life, the sheriff deputy knocks at your door, and he has the chaplain with him. Your doctor sits on the edge of your bed and clears his throat. Husband is suddenly tired of being married to you. Uh, Maybe it's not as drastic. Friday comes, and along with the 
pay comes a termination notice. Things that you thought would never happen just did. You're left in a bit of a heap. You're shaken to your core. You can feel that gnawing fear in the pit of your stomach, the knot in your throat. Your heart is aching um, for, for, for relief. There is none. How do you respond when it seems like life is falling apart, when you're facing trials you don't deserve, you don't think you can handle it a moment longer, all hell is breaking loose? Well, suddenly, maybe just as ex- unexpectedly, those those doubts begin to arise. I mean, you've been on that spiritual rock we just sang about. Now it feels like it's beginning to crumble. Questions begin to assault your mind. God, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the good die young? God, are you there? Do you, even, do you even care? Maybe that's not your response. Maybe you don't question. Maybe you just kind of put it in autopilot. <laughs> Another way to face trials is just to escape, to ignore them altogether, um, remove yourself as much as possible from the pain, and, and certainly to pray for deliverance because Certainly God doesn't want me to suffer, right? This is a commonly held view. If I'm suffering, there is something wrong. Could it not be true that there might be something right? Uh, A la Job. You ask for deliverance, God apparently says no. You're apparently better off right where you are because because if it is true that God is good, if it is true that God is loving, if it is true that God is powerful, if it is true that God is sovereign, would it not also be equally true that we are right where God wants us to be? Because while all things are not necessarily good, all things work together for good. Well, unless that verse isn't true. We've also faced those times when someone else, maybe it isn't us, maybe someone else, could be a close friend, a family member, an acquaintance, experiences loss, co-worker, friend, neighbor. Maybe it's someone here at church, which we've had recently. Maybe you walk closely with them, maybe you walk from a distance as they go through deep, unimaginable pain and sorrow. What do you do? What do you say? Is there even anything to say? Do do, do you say nothing? Do you act like normal, as if there is a normal? Maybe you're facing the pain of loss or a significant trial right now, if so, um, and you don't have to think of someone who's going through a greater trial, if so, uh, then this series of messages is designed especially for, for you. So with all that in mind, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 37 this morning. We began last week a study in the life of Joseph. 
I, I told you that we were not going to approach this story as a character study, as if his life will tell us, you know, how to respond to difficult siblings. All got them. How to, how to have a good work ethic. You ought to do that. Or, or how, to, how to interpret dreams. Now, that's not to say we're, we're not going to learn some good, solid biblical principles that will be helpful, but I want us, through our study, to focus on the main point. Because, you see, I suggested that Joseph's story is really Jacob's story, which is really Abraham's story, which is really God's story. And I took the time to re- last week to review God's story, at least what He has revealed to us, where history up to Genesis 37 has been and where we're going. We remember God created us in His image to reflect His glory and to, to rule over creation, but then we blew it repeatedly. So, so, so after we demonstrated that we were incapable of, well, incapable of doing anything right, God stepped into the pages of human history to redeem us, to restore us, to recreate us. And now we are headed, the glorious end to which we are headed is this new creation when all is right and God's glory fills His creation. We're not there yet. Don't know if you've noticed. He, he, made the, uh, he first made that promise that that's where we're headed uh, the first time we blew it, back in the Garden of Eden, told Adam and Eve, in the midst of cursing them, you're in big trouble. But, but, but listen, there's going to come a seed of the woman whose heel will be struck by the serpent, but in the process, the seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. The promised seed, we know, of course, is Jesus Christ. Roll the clock forward a few millennium from that first promise, and we arrive at the story of, of Abraham when, when God launches the story. Abraham... It's through you that all of the nations of the world will be blessed. The story of redemption is going to come through you, through your descendants. And he gave him that Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And through this great nation that I'm making is going to come both the Word of God and and the Son of God. God is at work fulfilling His overarching, glorious plan. I want you to listen. Not one promise of His will ever fail. In the midst of giving that promise, series of promises, that covenant uh, to Abraham, God just happened to mention that, that, that Abraham's descendants were going to be made a, a, a great nation while they were enslaved in a country not their own. In fact, He tells us that they're going to be there 400 years. If you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that happens in in Egypt. But at, at this point in the story, beginning of kind of middle of Genesis, um, Abraham's descendants, namely Jacob and 12 uh, uh, great-grandsons, are, are living in, in Canaan. So, so God begins unfolding His good plan. Listen, He begins unfolding this really, really awesome plan to get them down to Egypt because that's His story. It's His plan. It's for their good. It's for His glory. Frankly, it's for the good of all of the nations around them we're going to see. It's actually for the good uh, of everybody who's ever lived, which means actually this story is for our good. But in the process, 
Joseph, you know, one of those great-grandsons, has to go through some rather difficult times. God is in control. God's good. And, And Joseph has some difficult times. God, you see, is good even in the midst of things that are not so good. Could, could that be true of your life? Is it true that somebody's out to get you? The outline of the chapter goes like this. We're going to see the background of the story and the first few verses and, and then the stage being set for act one of the drama. Now, here's one of the challenges that we're going to face. Um, you, that's a lot of verses to read. And when you're reading narrative, you know, it's just one verse after the other. And, and, and I know because I've sat out there, I've been where you are, you kind of just zone. Don't do that. This is, a, this is a great story. And I want to remind you that God is at work through the whole thing. So let's start Genesis 37, verse 1. In fact, here, why don't I read from my Bible? <laughs> I, I think I'll just stick with this one. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Not a good idea. Now, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Not a good idea, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Not a good idea. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, that's not a good idea. They hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and and bowed down to my sheaf. This is a great dream. It's like about me. And then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers again. He's not very bright. (laughs) Lo, I, I had had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars now were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his, mo- and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous, jealous of him, but his father kept, say- kept the saying in mind. Joseph's a young man, about 17, uh, the 11th of, of, of Jacob's 12 sons. Uh, Jacob actually, you, you remember, had four wives, uh, Leah, Billah, Zilpah, and, and, and his beloved Rachel. She was his favorite. Uh, he, she had given him two sons, actually the last two sons of those 12, Joseph and, and Benjamin. But when she gave birth to Benjamin, she, she died. So while he gained a son, he lost his favored wife. So he actually favored Joseph. Now, it's interesting when you read about Joseph, as I did uh, this week, that, that we often hear commentaries talking about how perfect he was. 
I mean, we know he wasn't, they say, but there, there's nothing they suggest in the biblical record that tells us that he ever did anything um, bad. So, so like Job, he, he gets what he doesn't deserve. I'm not really sure I agree with all that. I, I, I don't think that he gets what he deserves, but I think that we're going to find that he was a bit of a spoiled brat, or at the very least, he lacked some sense. I mean, look at the things that brought about his brother's jealousy. There were at least four things. I'll suggest five. First, verse 2, says he was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth at 17. Now, again, this is narrative, and sometimes we just kind of just read through and we kind of miss some details. Notice pasturing the flock. That means that Joseph and his brothers were shepherds. Just, this is a little detail, but one which is going to become enormously important later as God fulfills His plan. We, 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 we find this out over and over again, that God is in the, the details. And I want to suggest to you this morning that God is in the details of your life. You think you, got, you, you, think you picked where you went to school. No, you didn't. You, you think you picked where you're working. No, you didn't. You, you think you, you picked that rotten boss. No, 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 you didn't. God is in control of the details of your life. Now, it's likely Joseph here was with all of his brothers, but for some reason, the, the sons of Billa and Zilpha, the two concubines, wives, are especially noted. Maybe it was they who did something at this point particularly bad. We read that Joseph brought his father a bad report about them. We don't know what that was. We can guess based on reading some stories before and after, these guys are not the cream of the crop. It's interesting, though, that the words bad report are typically used in the Old Testament to speak of giving a bad report, an evil report, for the purpose of causing trouble, of getting someone in trouble. I mean, the word could actually be, those words could actually be translated maligned, to speak evilly or harmfully of others. We, we have a word for that today. We call that tattling. There's, there's no desire to see reproof. I'm just telling you this so that you can go take care of this because I know I love my brothers and I care for them and I want to see righteousness prevail. No. I just want to get them in trouble. When I say Joseph was tattling, I'm not saying that telling on someone is necessarily wrong. We do have the responsibility to hold each other accountable. And there are times that we tell those in authority about the evil behavior of others. But the, but the bottom line is the motivation to get someone in trouble, or to bring about righteousness. Love for them, love for me, make me look better. The wording here seems to suggest that in Joseph's case, I'm tattling. The fact that Joseph was the one bringing the bad report may signify something else. It may signify that he was the chief shepherd. Other facts kind of support this, we'll see in a moment. But it was the chief shepherd's job to bring reports. Second reason for the brothers' jealousy was their father's special doting love for Joseph. Notice the beginning of verse, 
Verse 3, now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons. That's just crazy. You would think, given all of the misery that parental favoritism had, had given Jacob, uh, that, that he would not have repeated this problem. It shows that we don't learn from history. Jacob's father, Isaac, had favored Esau. And his mother, Rebekah, had favored Jacob, and it caused all kinds of problems between these two twins. Jacob didn't learn the lesson. Most would agree he was, at least showed a lack of wisdom uh, in this favoritism. Good principle from the text, again, not the main point. We want to stay focused on the main point, but, it, but a good principle do not show favoritism with your children. It only causes hurts and jealousies and sibling rivalries. A third reason for the brothers' jealousies found in the second part of verse 3. It's that part of the story that most of us are familiar with when it comes to Joseph. It was that very colored tunic or that coat of many colors, or maybe your translation has it, that richly ornamented robe. Now, the, the, the idea of the coat of many colors actually comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That's the way they translated it. It's not actually in the Hebrew. It most likely had nothing to do with color. Uh, the words seem to indicate a coat, a robe that went down to the wrists, down to the palms, that was kind of the word that was used, and down to the ankles or the, the, the flat of the feet. That's kind of the word that's used. It was, this robe, this long flowing robe, was a mark of distinction and honor. It, it meant two things. First of all, if you wore that robe, you were exempt from labor. You didn't work in that kind of attire. If you were a regular common working guy, stiff like the other 11 brothers, um, then you wore a sleeveless shirt, uh, tunic that, that just came down to the knees. The other stuff would get in the way. The second thing that that uh, signified is, again, special honor. It was usually worn by the future leader of the family. It was usually reserved for the oldest son. Joseph was what number? Eleven. Which meant Jacob passed over ten sons to honor Joseph and give him the birthright. They got it. This is actually another detail in the story that we need not miss. Reuben was the firstborn and, and had the right of the firstborn son, but he had um, forfeited that right in an event. It only occurs in one verse in chapter 35 when he, well, I just have to tell you that Reuben actually slept with one of his father's wives, and, 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 and Jacob heard about it, forfeited that right. The next two, Simeon and, and Levi, um, second and third sons had been involved in that awful story that I'm sure you read this week in chapter 34, the story of Dinah and the Shechemites. Forfeited their right. Fourth in line was Judah. Would he be the honorable leader of the family? The, the, the rest of the story seems to indicate that while Jacob favored Joseph, God had his eyes on Judah. Because you see, Jesus would be the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. See, God's in the, in the details. Rest of the story, God is working to bring the family down to Egypt and to transform the life of this dirty, rotten fourth son. 
Where is, look at that list, bad report, Jacob's special love, favoritism, this special tunic that was a constant symbol before the brothers, I'm the special one, you're not. Where was God in the midst of this family dysfunction and, and jealousy? Well, he's getting ready to pour fuel on the fire. A, a fourth thing that, that incensed the brother's jealousy was, of course, the dreams found in verses 5 to 11. The, the meaning of the dreams, very clear to everyone involved, no need for an interpreter. The dreams all pointed to the supremacy of Joseph. The first dream had to do with those sheaves or, or bundles of, of grain that were being harvested. In the dream, as they were binding uh, the, the bundles, Joseph stood straight up and the other ones bowed right in, in front of him. The meaning clear, the brothers, ten of them older, would bow down to Joseph. No, no way, they thought. God's in the details. A second dream, and, and we're going to find that dreams in Joseph's story always comes in pairs. Not only this second dream involved the brothers, but now Jacob and probably Leah, who had become Joseph's surrogate mother. In the dream, Joseph saw 11 stars, the sun and the moon, bowing down to him, meaning clear, brothers are now infuriated, Jacob's at least irritated, but ponders the meaning. There is a fifth thing that possibly contributed to the brothers' jealousy. I'm going to call it Joseph's attitude. What do I mean? <laughs> Just because Joseph had the dreams did not mean that he had to share them. At the, at the very least, it showed a lack of discretion or, or maturity in sharing it with the, the family. No, he could have just tucked it away, but no, he told not only one, but two. Hey, you guys like the last one? How about this one? Some of you remember Curtis Bedford. Curtis was fond of saying, always tell the truth, but don't always be telling it. There's some wisdom in that. Well, this jealousy fueled their hatred. Verse 4, they hated Joseph, could not say a nice word to him. Remember when your parents used to say to you, you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Lots of silence in this household. Uh, verse 5, when Joseph shared his first dream, they hated him. Arrogant, pompous, egotistical brat. Verse 8, hated him even more after the second dream. Things are not going well in Jacob's household. Trouble is brewing. Partly incited by God. The text doesn't say it, but where did the dreams come from? Who is the one who is going to elevate Joseph above his brother's? Trouble is brewing, partly incited by God. Could that be true in your life? Brings us to our second point, stage being set, verses 12 to 17. Look at that with me. His brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Jacob, Israel, said to Joseph, Are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring, back, or bring word back to me. I like that tattling. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and, they came to, and he came to Shechem. A man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. 
Then, he, then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Joseph is not with his brothers. They're working. He's not. He's home with daddy. More favoritism. Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem, which is what the brother's last known location. I want you to go, come back, tell me what's going on. Asking jo- Joseph again to play the role of chief shepherd and tattler. Shechem is about 50 miles north of, of Hebron. One of the reasons that Jacob would have been concerned about them pasturing near Shechem is because that's where the story in chapter 34 takes place of Dinah and the Shechemites. He's understandably concerned. So he sends Joseph, find your brothers in Shechem, looks around, doesn't find them. I keep telling you, God's in the details. You see, Joseph just happens to run in, he's walking around in a field, and he just happens to run into a guy who just happened to overhear the brothers say they were going to Dothan, which is another 15 miles north. Coincidence? I don't think so. I personally don't believe in coincidence in the life of believers who serve a sovereign good God. Do you hear me? Every once in a while, we'll say the words, good luck. I don't believe in luck. I don't say good luck. I say positive providence. (laughs) And actually, we're finding that all of God's providence is positive. God was behind the scenes orchestrating the events. Think about it. If Joseph had, run into this, had not run into this guy at this exact moment, he would not have found the brothers. The caravan that's going to take him to Egypt would, not have, would have already passed by. God's in the details of life. No coincidence. So he makes his way north, 15 miles to Dothan. Brings us to our third point. Background, stage is set. We get to the first act of this divine drama, verses 18 and following. I'm just going to read through verse, I I don't know, maybe uh, 30. Look at it. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And, And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. What do you think is bothering them right now? But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. Let nature take its course. He said this that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. And the words speak of violence there. The very colored tunic that was on him. And they took and threw him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty without any water in it. They sat down to eat a meal. I mean, I'm sure they were famished. They had just beat up their brother. And they raised their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, carrying some stuff on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what... Prophet, it is, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Hey, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's make some money on him. <laughs> Brothers, listen to him. They, some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out, sold him to the Ishmaelites, 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. That's God's plan. Reuben returned to the pit. Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments, returned to his brothers, and said, The boy is not here. As for me, where am I to go? We see here seven fruits of jealousy that, that lead to some significant, now notice, sinful actions against Joseph. And while God does not cause the sinful actions that are perpetrated against him, it accomplishes God's purposes and gets Joseph to Egypt. Is that possible in your life? Someone's out to get me, might be God. Seven. First one, we've already noted they hated him, could say nice words. Second, we see mockery, verse 19. Here comes this dreamer, literally, here comes this master of dreams. That's ironic because guess what? He is going to be the master of dreams and it's going to save his life. It's interesting to note that the dreams given by God were used against him evilly. That, is, is that possible? That God gives you some gifts, some good things that are then used against you, which in turn is exactly where God wants you to be. Is that possible? Verses 18 and 19, third thing, contemplation of murder. Let's throw them into the pits. The, the word there is, it speaks of a cistern. We'll say that a wild beast devoured him. Big hole in the ground, some of them are 20 feet deep, carved out of the rock. They're still there, by the way. And... Um, a little hole in the top, and during the rainy seasons, they would, they would, they would catch the water uh, and serve as a reservoir. We read later, this one's dry, so they throw him in it. We, we noted that when they, Joseph arrived, they stripped him of that hated symbol of his favored position. Uh, Reuben says, let's not lay hands on him. Let's not be guilty of killing him. Let's just put him in the pit. And whatever, que sera, sera. Whatever happens will happen. But of course, we also know that he was going to come back and restore him to Jacob because he was probably trying to get back in his dad's good graces after that event in chapter 35. Fourth, the notice the brother's indifference and insensitivity. Verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. And later, it's chapter 41, 42, we're going to find out that they heard Joseph crying. His cries of anguish past the peanut butter. Sin hardens hearts. Next, fruit of jealousy, cold-bloodedness. This is unbelievable. Verse 26. Judah sees this caravan of Ishmaelite, that's kind of the broad term, Midianite, kind of a specific, more specific term, coming by precisely at this time, because God's in the details, and he says, hey, why not accomplish our purpose, get rid of this little brat, and line our pockets at the same time? Make no mistake about it, this was God's hand of intervention at this exact point of, in time 
he brought the caravan along that would sell him into slavery in Egypt. What's the plan? Isn't there a different... What's the plan? Is it possible that there are some unpleasant circumstances going on in your life that God has allowed or even brought about for some specific purpose in your life? Is it possible? Verse 28 shows the culmination of their hatred. They sell their brother into slavery, 20 pieces of silver. Reuben shows up, tears his garments, but then throws in his lot with the group. Leaves the very last thing. We didn't read it. I won't take the time to read it. Verses 31 and 32, last one, lying deception. They took Joseph's special tunic. They dipped it in goat's blood. That's interesting. God's in the details. Jacob earlier had deceived his father with goat's hair. And now his sons deceive him with goat's blood. It's a little bit of divine irony there. Brothers, bring this tale back to their father. Examine the tunic. See if it's your sons. Notice they don't say our brothers. They're distancing themselves from this awful deed. And they deceive, they lie because sin, if you don't confess it in order to cover it, it often leads to more sin. You should, that's a principle. You should note that. Unconfessed sin often leads to more sin. Let me point something else out. Verse 35, Jacob says, Surely I will go down to Sheol. I'm going to go down to the grave in mourning for my son. Understandable. Ah, This is a bloody tunic. He thinks Joseph now dead. He's not aware that God is working all things together for his good. This is going to be a repeated theme that we're going to see in this story of Joseph, Allah, Jacob, Allah, Abraham, Allah, God. Jacob never seems to figure it out that God is working all things together for his good. Jacob is a, here we we go, Jacob is a half, a glass half empty kind of person. Who are you? Very difficult for him to accept God's good and sovereign control. He chooses instead to live a life of misery. Could it be that God in the midst of challenges, challenges that you don't understand, that you don't even like, could it, is it possible that he's working all things together for your good? Could you... Could you maybe see the glass a little differently? Could you maybe believe just for a moment that God's in control? I am suggesting this morning that God is always at work to fulfill His grand plan of the ages. Joseph might have been a tattle-telling little brat. How much of this did he actually deserve? Where was God in all of this? He was in all of this. Pastor Kent Hughes said it this way, God's hidden hand had its subtle way amidst the morass of human sin. God can and will take sin 
perpetrated against us, and he can turn it to our good. Listen, I'm going to be very careful here, okay? I'm not going to, hey, let's go out and send it up. No! I am not saying that God causes sin, that he plans sin, that he promotes sin, that he entices sin. I am saying that he overrules it and brings about our good in the midst of the trials of life. The story of Joseph shows God's hidden providence at work through the evils of men for ultimate good. He can do the same in your life. Many times, deliverance that you are praying earnestly for may not come in the way you would expect. I'm sure Joseph uttered a prayer or two from the bottom of the pit. Dad, come rescue me. (laughs) Dad did. It was just a different dad in a different way. I am sure that Joseph did not see the Ishmaelite caravan as the Calvary, but it was sent there by God. I'm going to close just with one other thought. And by the way, I, I'm just going to close with one other quick story. And just, just so you know, we're going to, what we're going to do then is we're going to stand and we're going to sing a couple of songs. And, and I'm going to ask the elders to, to come with their wives and stand across the front. We're just going to have one of those prayer times. It, it might be that you're facing a particularly difficult trial. And right now, you just need to see that the glass is half full. Maybe you just need to change your perspective a little bit. Maybe you need to see some things that you don't currently see. Let me tell you a story. This story, Act 1, takes place in a town called Dothan. Dothan actually disappears from the biblical narrative for centuries. In fact, it's only mentioned in one other story in the Bible. It reappears years later during the time of Elisha. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 6. There we read that the Arameans are fighting against the Israelites. But every time the king of uh, uh, the, uh, the Aramean king makes war plans, Elisha tells the king of Israel the plans and, and thwarts them. The uh, Aramean king is incensed. Who keeps telling the Israelites my plans? Who's the traitor among us? And the soldiers respond, not us. It's Elisha. And the king says, where is Elisha? And they say, Dothan. So the king sends his army against Elisha, horses and chariots and soldiers. And the next morning, Elisha and his servant wake up to find Dothan surrounded by the enemy. And we pick up the story in verse 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And the servant said to him, the glass is half empty. Alas, my master, what shall we do? Everything is against us. We're in big trouble. God is no longer in control. Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's that's Dothan. So, 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 So in what Dothan are you living today? 
How do you need to be reminded that, that, that God is surrounding you, that He encamps around those who fear Him? I, I don't know what you're facing this morning. I know what some of you are, but we just want to pray for you. I'm going to ask, why don't you go ahead and stand up? Go, worship team, why don't you go ahead and come on up? Elders, wives, uh, if you would just uh, come and stand across um, the front here. I, I really just don't delay. Just go ahead and come on up. Um, what Dothan are you facing right now? What trial are you facing where you need to be reminded that God is there, that He's in control? that He's in charge. And here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. If you've got something that you'd like us to pray about with you, we'd love to do that. I'm going to invite you to come, but here's how we're going to pray. God, would you open their eyes? Would you open their eyes to see that you're in charge and that you're good? Even when it doesn't look like it, you're in charge, you're good, you're bringing about your purposes in this person's life. Now, would you do that, God? This is, will be our prayer for you. So, Father, right now, whatever the needs are, we come before the throne of God to find mercy, help in our time of need. Help us now to do the work of body life in Christ's name. Amen. You can sing. You can come. You can pray. We'd love the opportunity to pray with and for you.